Paul Bear Bryant. You ever heard of him? Paul Bear Bryant was the legendary football coach for the Alabama Crimson Tide. The Bear was one of the greatest coaches of all time. But did you know that at practice he actually did his coaching up in the tower? Most of the actual coaching was done on the field by his assistants. But the Bear, he stayed in the tower. On occasion, he would notice a mistake that his assistant coach failed to correct. He'd grab his bullhorn and he would shout down instructions. In a sense, this is what God did in the Old Testament. Often God's own field assistants, the priests and the Levites and the kings, they grew corrupt. They failed to do their job. They refused to follow the playbook, the scriptures. And God would take his bullhorn and he would shout down instructions from on high. The prophets were God's bullhorn. And no one fits that description better than Amos. During the middle of the 8th century BC, a flurry of prophets were blasting out God's warnings to both the northern and to the southern kingdoms. To the southern tribe of Judah, God sent Isaiah and Micah. To the northern ten tribes of Israel, he sent Hosea, Jonah, and the subject of the next in our minor prophet series, Amos. I like to call Amos the in-your-face prophet. He was hard-nosed. He was no-nonsense. Amos was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. Chapter 1 begins. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We're told that Amos wrote two years before an earthquake. This must have been quite a quake. It was so memorable, in fact, that the prophet Zechariah was still talking about it 250 years later. He makes reference to this earthquake in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. You can look it up later. It's interesting, Josephus, the Jewish historian, also mentions this earthquake. He links it to the portentous pride of King Uzziah. Do you recall about Uzziah? Rather than be content with being king, Uzziah wanted to expand his role. He also wanted to be priest. This, of course, was a violation of God's law. For God had ordained a separation of powers. Kings and priests were to be distinct. That's why in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we're told that when Uzziah entered the temple, God struck him with leprosy. Josephus adds that the earthquake occurred at the same time that Isaiah was struck with God's judgment. I'll read to you Josephus' account. A great earthquake shook the ground. And a tear was made in the temple, and the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face, insomuch that the leprosy seized him immediately. Before the city, half the mountain broke off from the rest on the west and rolled itself four furlongs, that's literally half a mile, and stood still at the east mountain till the roads were spoiled by the obstruction. Obviously, this earthquake was strong enough to alter the topography of the city of Jerusalem. 
Some scholars believe that this earthquake was of such a magnitude that it affected not only Jerusalem, but also the surrounding region. Now, in the first two chapters of Amos, the prophet is going to record fire and brimstone-type judgments on Israel's neighboring nations. It's possible that it was this killer earthquake with the lightning storms, with the prairie fires that it would have caused, that this was what fulfilled the judgments that are spoken of in these first two chapters. Science and history and archaeology all combine to date the earthquake of Amos as 756 B.C. This makes the time of Amos' prophecy two years earlier, or 758 B.C. Now, Amos also tells us that he was a herdsman from Tekoa. Tekoa, kind of like Tekoa, Georgia, was a hick town. It was a one-traffic-like kind of town. This was the kind of place where dogs live under the front porch, where mailboxes are made out of automobile parts, where funeral homes have neon signs, where there's a tire swing in everyone's front yard, where children are named after good hunting dogs, and where everyone in town knows how to milk a goat. That's where Amos was from. He was from Tekoa. Tekoa was a country village 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem in the Judean wilderness. It was actually the last settlement between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. We're also told that Amos was a herdsman. In chapter 7, verse 14, later in the book, he tells us, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. I guess you could say Amos was the first non-profit organization. He goes on to say in chapter 7, But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now in chapter 1, the Hebrew term sheep breeders refers to sheep. But in chapter 7, the same English word, sheep breeder, is actually a different Hebrew word. It's a more generic word. It can also refer to cattle. Thus, we could conclude that Amos must have been a rancher who raised cows and sheep. He was a shepherd and a cowboy. Amos was also a farmer. Here we're told he raised sycamore figs. Apparently, Amos was quite a country boy. He knew animals and he knew agriculture and he built a business. And it was his business, no doubt, that took him north to Israel. He often visited the cultural and the religious centers of Samaria and Bethel and Gilgal. And there he saw the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel. The immorality, the injustices, the idolatry. And one day, God called Amos to leave behind his business and to go prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos tells us that he was not a professional prophet. He had no degrees. He had no formal training. He never been ordained by men. Amos was just a good old boy from a southern town who God called north to the urban jungles of the big cities to deliver a series of warnings. You could say that Amos was an amateur. And I'm sure 
He didn't mind, he wouldn't have minded you calling him that. But did you know what the word amateur means? It's actually a French word, which means for the love of it. Hey, Amos wasn't a professional minister. It wasn't a profession to him. Serving the Lord, prophesying, speaking for God was his passion. It was a calling, not a career. The prophet Amos was in the ministry because he loved the Lord and he was willing to preach God's word. May God give us more men like Amos. Not men who choose the ministry, but men that God has chosen. Too many pastors today are pastors because they saw the ministry as a lucrative career option, an attractive position, a big salary perhaps, or plenty of time to play golf. They have no deep love for God. They have no passion for His people. Today's church has paid professionals. What we need are amateurs like Amos. Well, verse 2 tells us, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. You see, the prophet's voice is not the still, small whisper of the Holy Spirit. It's a godly growl. It's an attention-grabbing voice, like a lion's roar. And here we're told from where Amos tells us the lion roars. And this is why Amos' prophecy was so controversial in his day. For right at the beginning, right at its opening salvo, here in verse 2, Amos picks a fight with the establishment of the northern kingdom. For he says, the lion roars from where? From Zion. In other words, God speaks from the hills of Jerusalem. His ancient dwelling place was his pulpit. Jerusalem was the podium from where God spoke. And this angered the leaders of Israel, for they had broken away from Jerusalem and from the southern kingdom of Judah. You see, the northern kingdom had invented an alternate system of governance and worship that God despised. You remember the history. After Solomon, the kingdom split in two, northern, north and south. Judah remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty and to the temple. But the ten northern tribes set up rival altars in Dan and in Bethel. And they established an alternate capital in Samaria. Here God, through his prophet Amos, trumpets his disapproval. The Lord roars, not from Samaria, but from Zion. He also says the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The mountains of Carmel were the heartland of the northern kingdom. And the fact the shepherds mourn means that judgment is coming. If I invited my wife Kathy to go with me to a football game, it wouldn't really prove much. Because I like football. Oh, but if I said, honey... I just purchased tickets to the Nutcracker. Oh, boy. That's true love. For me, a night at the Nutcracker is sheer torture. If I bought tickets to the Nutcracker, she would know I love her. Real love, real love is loving someone in the way they want to be loved, not just in the way that's convenient for you to love. You get that? And yet, this is the way Israel treated God. Their alternate religion was one of convenience. 
And that's why God called it idolatry. And God will judge Israel. But before Amos speaks of that judgment, he unloads on the surrounding cities and nations for how they had treated God's people, the Hebrews. He starts with Damascus in Syria. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Now here Amos uses a phrase that will occur throughout his prophecy. For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. You've heard the baseball-based idiom, three strikes and you're out. In essence, here the Lord is giving Damascus four strikes. He's showing them mercy. But after the fourth strike, Amos is like the umpire. You're out of here. There is a line from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that kind of sums up God's judgment. Longfellow wrote, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. Amos demonstrates that God's exactness, when he pinpoints Damascus' crime, he says they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Gilead was the region east of the Jordan River, what is today the Golan Heights. At the time, it was poorly fortified, and so Syrians were able to prey on the defenseless Hebrews who lived there. Amos compares their abuse to that of threshing. The Hebrew word means trampled. Ancient plows were made out of wooden boards that were studded with metal spikes. Thus, they were dragged across the ground. This was the type of treatment that Syria had inflicted upon Gilead. And in verse 4, we're told the judgment. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Now Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. He and his capital city of Damascus are going to receive the same treatment that they, were, that they dished out. In fact, later, Tiglath-Pelazir III, that's a strange name. Just know he was a future Assyrian king. Later, we find that he wrote in his annals these words. I destroyed 592 towns of the 16 precincts of the country of Damascus, rendering them like hills over which the flood passed. In other words, Syria had trampled Gilead, but in return, God was going to raise up the Assyrians to come and trample Damascus, which is exactly what happened. Damascus, Ben-Hadid, and the Syrians got what was coming to them from the hands of the Assyrian army. I can't help to think, when I read this story, of a modern-day parallel. On our trips to Israel, we usually visit the Golan Heights, and we survey the modern battlefields. I've even visited a Syrian bunker where today's Ben-Hadids, or Syrians, had once camped against Israel. Back before the Six-Day War in 1967, the Israelis had a spy in Damascus. His name was Eli Cohen. In fact, there's a book about his life. It's a fascinating book. It's called Our Man in Damascus, 
Eli Cohen was eventually caught by the Syrians and he was hung. But before the war, Cohen visited these bunkers with a Syrian general, the bunkers that the Syrians had in the Golan Heights. Cohen made the suggestion that the Syrians should plant eucalyptus trees around the bunkers to provide shade for their soldiers. It gets hot up there in the sunshine. The Syrians bought into the idea. Well, when the Six-Day War broke out and the Israeli jets went to bomb Syrian installations in the Golan Heights, guess what they used as their targets? They dropped their bombs on the eucalyptus groves and knock out the Syrian fortifications. Once again, a fire fell on Syria. Well, verse 6 targets another ancient enemy who remains hostile to Israel even into modern times. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Gaza was the capital of the Philistines. And it is today a Palestinian stronghold. Gaza's crime was to capture Hebrew cities and then sell their citizens as slaves to Edom. Which sounds just like a tactic out of the ISIS playbook today, doesn't it? That kind of cruelty, human slavery, has a long history in the Middle East. But God will judge Gaza, we're told, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Amos mentions four of the five Philistine cities that are located on Israel's southwest coast. He mentions Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. And here is tonight's quiz. Are you ready for it? Can anyone name the fifth Philistine city not mentioned here? Absolutely. Goliath of Gath. City of Gath. Excellent. Verse 9 sets its sights on Tyre. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Tyre was the capital of the Phoenicians. And they were guilty of the same crimes as the Philistines. Here they received the same judgment. It seems that God's punishment always fits the crime. Tyre sold Hebrews into slavery. And history tells us that when Alexander the Great conquers Tyre 400 years later, guess what he does? He sells 30,000 of their inhabitants into slavery. What goes around comes around. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. And I will send a fire upon Teman which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Edom and Israel, a.k.a. the descendants of Esau and Jacob, they were brothers. But their hostility was perpetual. In fact, when Moses led the nation through the wilderness to the promised land, it was the Edomites who refused to let Israel pass through their territory. And it was really from that point onward that the relationship between these two nations never improved. The Edomites harbored a grudge. 
They were never willing to bury the hatchet. Instead, they used the hatchet on their brother. They were merciless. They were driven by bitterness, and as a result, God judged them. Reminds me of a comedy routine years ago, featured two brothers. We'll call them Dumb and Dumber. Well, Dumber, he complained about an acquaintance of his who always slapped him in the chest. His brother asked him, he said, well, what are you going to do to stop him? He says, well, I'm going to put a stick of dynamite in my shirt pocket so that the next time he slaps me in the chest, he's going to blow off his hand. Obviously, what Dumber didn't take into account was that he was also going to blow a hole in his chest. And isn't this how bitterness works? You think you're harming the other guy, but what you're really doing is killing yourself, blowing a hole in your chest. It's true, anger is an acid that, does, that can do more harm to the vessel in which it's stored than to anything on which it's poured. When are we going to learn the lesson, harbor and nurse a grudge, and the person you're hurting most is yourself. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, And for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. These barbaric Ammonites ripped open the wounds of pregnant women to spread their terror. And let me say it. The Ammonite sword... And the abortionist scalpel have a lot in common. We're told that Ammon used this, tra- this tactic to enlarge its territory. And do you know this is what the abortion industry in America is doing? Abortion is now big business in this country. Greed, not the right to choose, is what drives its proliferation. I once spoke to a 15-year-old girl who had just had an abortion. It infuriated me to hear the coercion and the lies that she was told. The clinic tried to talk her into aborting her baby. That's not pro-choice. That's pro-cash. Well, Amos prophesies, But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity He and his princes together, says the Lord. Rabbah, the capital of Ammon, will be crushed by the Assyrians. Amos' judgment of the nations continues into chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, the Moabites were guilty of desecrating the dead. They apparently exhumed the body of the king of Edom and had him cremated or had his bones burned. This was actually an act of racial prejudice. The Moabites were showing their hatred for the Edomites. And as a result, God promises to judge the country of Moab. He says, but I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Kiriath was the religious center of Chemosh, which was the idol of the Moabites. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Moab will also be punished. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, 
Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. Now here Amos begins to hit a little closer to home. He prophesies God's judgment against his own people, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now remember, Amos was not only your country bumpkin in the eyes of the people of Samaria and Bethel, he was also a foreigner to them. He was a southerner who had been sent north. God called Amos to cast judgment on the Yankee nation. But before he sets his sights northward, he first has to point out the sins of his own people, the southern kingdom of Judah. I think God wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was proclaiming God's word, not just some personal bias. First, he judges his own people, Judah. Verse 5, But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Again, until now, the prophecies of Amos have been received with applause, with great cheers. The Hebrews' enemies are being punished. God is judging the enemies of Israel and Judah. But now God's people find themselves on the hot seat. Like the lady on the front row of the church who was really into the pastor's preaching. She was clapping. She was shouting, Amen, Amen, as the pastor ripped and railed on every sin imaginable. She was enjoying the sermon immensely until all of a sudden he began to condemn the sin of dipping snuff. She rolled her eyes, shook her head, told her friend, now he's quit preaching and he's gone to meddling. Well, for the Israelites, in verse 6, Amos quits preaching and he goes to meddling. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. The king of Israel at the time was a man named Jeroboam II. He reigned over Israel for 41 years. In fact, Jeroboam II presided over a time of unparalleled prosperity and military strength. During his reign, Israel and Judah took back most of the land that Solomon had governed that had been lost by succeeding kings. But Jeroboam's reign was the calm before the storm. For in just 35 years, the once proud nation of Israel and its capital of Samaria would be no more. In just two years, an earthquake would demolish much of its empire, as we've noted. Jeroboam's successor would be assassinated, causing political turmoil from which the northern kingdom would never recover. In addition... The Assyrians in the east, they were mounting a ruthless army. They were on the rise. They were licking their chops, desiring to expand their borders. It all combined and meant that barreling toward the nation of Israel was a tidal wave of trouble. And the only way for Israel to avoid this brewing storm was to take heed to the prophet Amos' warning to renounce their idolatry and to turn back to God. Amos' critique of the northern kingdom was twofold. Idolatry against God and injustice against man. Idolatry against God and injustice against man. For you need to know that the two go hand in hand. When God gets lost, 
mankind loses. Men and women, they derive their dignity and their value from the fact that we were made in God's image. Understand, human rights are inalienable rights. Why? Because they come from God. They're not given to us by the government. They come from God. That's why when you take God out of the equation and pretend that man is merely an evolved animal, you diminish the individual's self-worth. It really does become survival of the fittest. The weak become vulnerable to the strong. Government takes the place of God in assigning us our rights. And in the end, the rich, the powerful, end up in control while the poor get exploited and the innocent get abused. This is what was going on in Amos' day. The prophecy of Amos is more relevant than you think. Well, Amos writes in verse 7, They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. I think you'll find that throughout the Bible, there is a consistent caring for the poor. From the law to the prophets, certainly to the gospels, caring for the poor is a recurring theme. You can't read the life of Jesus without noticing his compassion toward the poor. And this should be the Christian's priority. Spiritual commitment should translate into social compassion. Rather than compete, the two priorities should complement. A true love for God is going to produce a sincere love for man. Realize poverty is more than just a physical condition. Poverty is a frame of mind. The poor person is so used to living just for the moment, he or she has no future focus. The demands just to stay alive prohibit many folks from learning how to thrive. When we help the poor, we should look for ways to pass on hope, not just a handout. It's been said money alone can't help until there's a reason to hope. It's hope that matters more. Well, Amos, he comments on this awful situation going on in his day. He says, some were perverting the way of the humble. He says, a man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. This was a reference to the practice of temple prostitution. This was an act common in ancient times. You see, the pagans believed that prosperity and fertility on earth were the result of sexual relations among the gods and goddesses in the afterlife. In other words, they thought that an abundant harvest could be secured by coming to the temple and having sex with a priestess. She acted as a prostitute, exchanging sexual favors for an offering. And sadly, these pagan ideals were being adopted by the Israelites. When they settled into Canaan, rather than getting rid of those influences, they courted them. And those influences eventually took root in their hearts. But lest we think this is just an ancient problem. I read recently of a Los Angeles couple who were found guilty of prostitution. They claimed to be followers of the tenets of the Church of the Most High Goddess. They claimed to be part of a 5,000-year-old Egyptian cult. The woman said that she was the high priestess, and it was her duty to perform sex with the men that she solicited. Sex was her way of atoning for their sins. 
Of course, her services were followed by a $150 contribution. It's all just a, play, a page from the pagan playbook. These were the practices of the Canaanites that had been adopted, the sinful practices that had been adopted by Israel. And in verse 9, Amos tells them what God thinks of this practice. He says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. See, it was Israel God used to drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, who were once tall and strong. Also, it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. You see, it was ironic. God used Israel in their, their uh, presence in the promised land. God used Israel to judge the Amorites who had lived there before them because of the very same practices that the Israelites were now embracing. Israel was no better than the people they had driven out. Verse 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. Now pay attention because this relates to us all. God raised up godly people in the land to teach holiness to their fellow Israelites. You remember the Nazarite was a man who had taken a special vow. He was not to drink wine, not to put a razor to his head, and not to touch anything that was dead. And the Nazarite was a walking billboard for the values of God. Here's how. The Nazarite, the fact that he didn't drink the wine, he was teaching that real joy is found in the spiritual not the physical. The fact that he didn't shave his head was teaching that real beauty is inward, not outward. And the fact that he didn't touch anything that was dead, he was teaching that real life is eternal, not temporal. This was what the Nazarite was all about. He was, a, he was an instruction to the people that if you want real joy, you need to be spiritual. Look for the spiritual things, not the physical. Real beauty is the inward man, not the outward man. And then certainly real life is to be found in eternity, not just on this earth. But here's the problem. The Israelites didn't want to be reminded of what pleased God. Instead, they were a nation of Delilahs. They enticed their Samsons, who also was a Nazarite. They enticed their spiritual strongmen, the Nazarites, to break their vow. How? By giving them wine to drink, Amos says. Drinks on the house for all pastors. 99 cent margaritas for pastors tonight. Happy hour for pastors. Just turn in here. They wanted to reduce the Nazarites to background noise by getting them to compromise their holiness. When men, when people of God, when people like you and I who want to be a witness to this world, when people who God intends to stand out end up blending in and living compromised lives, God's cause loses in society. The voice God wants shared gets muffed 
the billboard God wants advertising suddenly gets taken down. If you've been a Christian for long, I'm sure you've discovered that people who don't want to live for God don't want you to live for Him either. It makes them feel uncomfortable. Somebody with conviction convicts them of their own sin. And they'll go to great extremes to encourage you to compromise. They'll give you wine to drink. They'll give you other temptations. That's why we need to stand strong. But that's not what the Israelites did. God tells them in verse 13, Behold, I I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaths is weighed down. Can you imagine God speaking to you tonight and saying, Man, you're a burden to me. Man, you just, you just get me down, man. That's what he's saying. That, that the Hebrews, they were a burden to him. They were a rock in his shoe. How sad when you become a yoke around God's neck, when you're a monkey on God's back, when you're a burden, he's just tired of caring. This is what he said about these people. If you're like me, you want to be a joy. You want to be a delight to God. You want to be a blessing to him, not a burden. Verse 14, therefore flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. In other words, no one will escape God's judgment, not the swift, Not the strong, not the skilled, not even the brave. The justice and power of God will humble every man. Chapter 3 tells us, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. At one time, the American Express card had a motto. Remember what it was? Membership has its privileges. Of course, fail to pay your bill, and you'll also realize that membership has its responsibilities too. Israel was chosen of God. Out of all the nations of the earth, God handpicked the children of Jacob to be his people. They had special seating in the plan of God. But with their privilege came responsibility. God held them to a higher standard. One Jewish historian prayed facetiously, Lord, thank you for choosing us as your chosen people, but how about choosing someone else for a while? He understood that membership also has responsibilities. Of course, this is what Jesus taught us. Luke 12, 48, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, Of him, they will ask the more. And this is a lesson for us, is it not? We too have been chosen by God. We are privileged in Christ. As Paul said to the Ephesians, as Christians, we've been given a high calling that we could never deserve. But now that we have it, we need to own it and we need to wear it well. We need to walk worthy of our calling. And Amos makes a profound statement in verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? This is such a key verse 
in any relationship, how can two people walk side by side unless they can work in sync? In a marriage, at home, at work, in the church? If you can't find common ground on the big issues, then how are you going to live and function in any kind of unity? It's just going to be constant turmoil where there's no trust. And this is certainly true in our relationship with other people, but it's also true in our relationship with God. You know, if we're going to walk with God, we have to agree with God. There has to be three things. There has to be a shared starting place. There has to be a shared walking pace. And there has to be a shared staying grace. For two people to walk together, they first have to agree on a starting place. And with our walk with God, guess where the starting place is? It's the cross. For each of us, the day we begin to walk with God was the day we stopped living for ourselves and embraced the cross of Jesus Christ. As he died for us, now we live for him. John Bunyan writes of his conversion. He says, I was made to see again and again that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. I still recall the day and the place where I died to my self-centeredness, got on my knees and began to walk with God. You see, every walk needs a starting place. And to walk, you also need a shared pace. Ever worked out on a treadmill? You set the machine, boy, then you jump on. And it's up to you to keep up the pace. Get going a little too fast or get a little too slow and you'll fall off. And so it is in the Christian life. God sets the pace and it's up to us to adjust our pace to his. If we get ahead of God or if we lag behind him, we can get off track. You remember when Peter denied the Lord at his trial, we're told that Peter followed at a distance. Peter let too much space get between him and Jesus. Perhaps tonight you're lagging behind the Lord and you need to step it up. Of course, at other times, you know, Peter, he was notorious for getting ahead of Jesus. So here's the point. Whether you're ahead or whether you fall behind, if you're going to walk with someone, you need a shared pace. And lastly, you need to stay in grace. The truth is, a lot of walking with God is just letting Him carry us. He picks us up in His strength and He moves us forward. We need His joy and His peace and His power. He wants us to learn to trust Him. The key to walking with Jesus is not only receiving His saving grace, but learning to rely on His staying grace. This is what it means to abide in Christ. So, can two walk together unless they are agreed? And of course the answer is no. You need a shared get a starting place, a shared walking pace, and you need a shared staying grace. This is how you walk through life in harmony with Jesus. And then verse 4 tells us, Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Of course, the old lion, when he attacks, he roars. He tries to intimidate his prey. 
since he's lost his quickness. He relies on intimidation. He says, well, a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing. I mean, the young lion, in turn, only roars if he has a full stomach, if his hunting has been a success. Then he growls. He says, will a bird fall into the snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And here's Amos's point with all these illustrations. There is a law of cause and effect. Seldom do things just happen. Usually circumstances are the result from the choice that someone's made. And this is what we should be asking ourselves when trouble pops up in our lives. Am I the cause of this? Have I brought this mistake, this this terrible thing, on me because of some mistake I've made or some bad choice I've made? Have I sinned? Is that why God is trying to get my attention? This is the first thing we need to ask ourselves. Amos knows that judgment is coming. He wants God's people to ask the right questions when it does. Verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, God often surprises us with his blessings, but God never surprises us with his judgments. You see, he plants warning signs all around us, all along the path we're headed. He warns us through the prophets, he says. The person who heads for ju- the person who's running headlong into judgment is running through one red light after another, one stop sign after another. I mean, there's warnings all around them. God surprises us with blessings, but he always warns us of coming judgment. There are Bible scholars who consider the seven churches of Revelation as representative of the seven ages of church history, from the time of Jesus all the way up to the present. I tend to hold that interpretation myself. Ephesus was the early church, and you can just kind of see the parallels all along the way. Laodicea is the modern church. But what's interesting is that those scholars who propose that, they use Amos chapter 3, verse 7 as a reason for that view. That since God does nothing that he doesn't first reveal, then it's fitting that he would give us a glimpse of the development of the church ahead of time, which I believe he's done in those letters. Well, in verse 8, Amos repeats, A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Again, the prophet is compelled to speak. When God speaks, it's like a lion's roar. It commands our attention. It should strike healthy fear in our hearts. Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. The Philistines, the Egyptians... They're here invited to Samaria to see the ruins of the city. Judgment is coming on her robbery and her violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. And it was in 722 B.C. that Samaria fell to the Assyrians. Amos predicted it, and God brought it to pass. 
Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. In other words, God's judgment on Samaria will be violent. You know, when a lion slipped into the herd and attacked a sheep, the shepherd would bring back to the owner of the flock a piece of the carcass just to prove that the sheep had been attacked, not stolen by the shepherd. And this is what was going to happen to Israel's capital, Samaria. It's going to be devoured by the Assyrian army. He says, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The city of Bethel was the site of Israel's false worship. God is going to destroy the altar of the idol. It's going to wipe out its sacrifices. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Israel had great riches. Under Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom had prospered, and many of its upper crust, they had vacation homes, had winter homes and summer homes. A house of ivory was a symbol of immense wealth. Here we're told God is going to bring judgment on their sin. And their houses will perish. And so if you've always wanted that little summer house up on the lake, kiss it goodbye, man. (laughs) God's going to destroy the winter house along with the summer house. You're not missing anything. And there we have first three chapters of the in-your-face prophet, this rage in Amos from down south.